2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that we will, he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. We also welcome you that are visiting with us for the first time. We're glad that you're here. As Ryan just read our text for this morning, last week, if you were not here, let me just kind of catch you up. We talked about the sufferings of Christ in Philippians, and Paul says that this is what it looks like for a life that is worthy of the gospel, that we are to be united. We are to strive side by side with one another because we are to take the gospel to the lost world. And in doing that, we have opponents. We have um, people who oppose us because they love their darkness, but that's not to keep us from going forward. Paul says, do not be afraid of those opponents. And then he says, because that's a sign of their destruction, but of our salvation. And that is from God. Our salvation is from God, not us. And then he goes on to say, for it has been graciously given to you, not only the faith to believe, but also the gift to suffer with Christ. That's what the Christian life is about. So last week, we kind of had a challenge here to kind of to get up and to go out and do what Paul encouraged us to do. So this morning, I want to encourage us in our suffering through the word of God. And as, as Ryan just read the text right here, we're going to see that our Father is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And real quick, before we get started, in the context here, and also in Philippians, we're talking about the sufferings of Christ. We're talking about the believer who suffers for their faith. But I don't want to just leave it there. I want to include everyone here this morning. I want to talk about suffering in general, because you're a human being, we suffer. It's probably been about three months, and people that I've talked to and through text or email or on the phone or whatever, it just seems like somebody's always going through something. I don't know about you, but I feel that way with me. There's hardly a day that goes by that something doesn't happen. And it's difficult. That's why we're supposed to encourage one another and support one another, as we're going to find out later in this text. 
But suffering happens to all of us. And we're hurting. And we're mourning. And we're lonely. And it's difficult. How do we get through this? I've talked to people who something has happened to them back in their teens and they're 50 years old and they're still dealing with it. They're still struggling maybe with the death of a loved one or a death of a child or, or sickness or, or whatever it might be. You know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life and God knows what's going on in all of our lives. And I just want through this text, I, I want God to just draw us closer to him so that when the sufferings do happen, which they will, we will know the source of all comfort. Amen? So let's pray real quick, and then we're going to get into our text. Father, this world is tough. It's difficult. It's hard. Everywhere we turn, we see people suffering. Everywhere we turn, we hear, we hear of people, our, our parents, our children, our relatives have cancer, disease, sickness, whatever it might be. And it, and, and it mourns us. It, it, it grieves us to, to think, why so much suffering? Why, why does this have to happen? So I pray, God, that you would use me to be an encouragement to all of us, including myself. Lord, I need to be encouraged to this word. So I pray, God, that you would take your word by the power of your spirit and reveal your love to us. And I pray that when we leave, we would feel even closer to you than we have right now. So I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a real quick background on 2 Corinthians. I don't know if most, most of you know this, but this is actually Paul's fourth letter that he had written to the Corinthians. The first and third letters that he had wrote are lost, and we do not have them now. And I believe that's because God just did not want it in the canon of Scripture. So um, the second letter that he had written was 1 Corinthians, as we know it, in the Bible. And in there, Paul had gotten word from some people that there was sexual immorality going on in the church. And also the Corinthians had asked him some questions about the Christian life and how we're supposed to live this. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians back to them to answer those questions and to answer and to, um, to um, address the issue of sexual morality going on in the church and how to deal with that. Well, Timothy came back to Paul and delivered word to Paul that nothing had changed. They did not deal with the sexual immorality in the church. Matter of fact, things had gotten worse. So Paul gets word of this, and he writes another letter to them. This letter is called the harsh letter. This letter, he let them have it because they were not doing things the way God ordained it. And as the apostle and as the founder of the church, he is rebuking them seriously for this. So after this letter, Titus delivered this letter. Titus comes back and Paul, Paul is actually anxious that he wrote this letter. He's actually, and we'll read it here a little bit later, he's grieved that he wrote this because he doesn't know why or how the Corinthians are going to respond to this harsh letter. Are they going to hate me for it? Are they, are they going to be done with me or, or whatever? He had no idea. So he's very anxious. So finally, he leaves town and he meets up with Titus. And Titus gives word to Paul that the Corinthians had repented, dealt with the immorality that was going on in the church, and now have given their allegiance back to Paul. And for that, Paul is very thankful for that. However, there are still few Corinthians still here that are not on the same page as Paul. Super apostles, as they called them, which are basically false teachers, by the way, had come in while Paul left and began to teach another gospel. 
Now, Paul says that if anybody comes and teaches another gospel that I taught you, it's another gospel and it's a false teaching. You're not to listen to that. And these false teachers, they wanted to bring in their type of teaching, and the way to do that was to get at Paul, his credentials as an apostle. So basically, 2 Corinthians, his fourth letter, is basically a defense of his apostleship. He's having to write them to defend that he is an apostle because this is what the super apostles were telling them that he wasn't. So they were kind of believing the super apostles. So if you would, real quick, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and look at me at verse 5, and you'll just kind of see what I just told you about. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing and your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So here Paul is sending that harsh letter, and Titus brings back word that they have repented, and that brought, that brought Paul much joy in that. And he actually did grieve writing that letter, but did you see what the letter produced by the Holy Spirit? It produced repentance. And sometimes we need that type of letter. Sometimes we need that type of talk. That's why church discipline is so important. It's not just so that the leaders can just come up here and just rule everybody they want. It's to bring you to repentance. It's to see sin in your life that you don't see and lovingly, generally go to you and comfort you and call you out on that so that you would repent and come back into fellowship. That's the whole goal of church discipline. This is kind of like what Paul did. Now, the super apostles, when they were in the, the Corinthian church, this is the kind of stuff that they were saying. Number one, they questioned Paul's character. They said, basically, that Paul had lied about his plans to come and visit them. Paul had said that he was going to come and visit them. And the Holy Spirit directed his plans another way, and he didn't come. So therefore, these super apostles says, see, the apostle Paul is not a man of his word. He's a liar. No apostle would lie. They questioned his motives. He's only in this for the money. And if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul sends Titus to collect a collecting to bring back to the Jerusalem church to help the poor believers. So see, he's only in it for the money. They also questioned his ability. Look at this guy. He's weak. He's small. He suffers. He's not handsome. He can't be an apostle. And, and if you know the Corinthians well, I'm going to tell you in a little bit here, this is what they did. They, they, they saw that as a Christian, you know, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to rebuke them because they took the spiritual gifts and used, used them for themselves to puff themselves up and to make them look good in front of other people. So this is what the Corinthians were drawn to. They thought that being a believer was, you know, you're going to be, have, be famous and everybody's going to know you, and you're going to be superior to everyone. 
And this is what Paul is trying to address here. And then they really question his credentials. He's not an apostle because he didn't walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what they were doing. It's as if they were saying, look at this guy. He suffers constantly. Everywhere he goes, he's thrown into prison. He's beaten. And does this look like an apostle to you? Does this look like a Christian to you? They doubted that Christ could triumph through such a weak man who always seemed to be at risk. Ask yourself this, this, this question. What is a Christian to you? What, what, what does that look like? Is it somebody who's rich and famous, never has any trouble, always has the right answers to all the questions? This is what Paul is going to address in our, in our text here this morning. Where is the evidence of God's power in this man's life is what they were asking. He's weak. He suffers. And if God were on his side, he wouldn't be going through any of this. You ever feel that way? They must not have read Acts 9.16. When Saul was converted and named Paul, he was told, listen to this, Acts 9.16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here's an apostle called and chosen by God before the foundations of the world. And he's being called by God. And he sends a man to go open his blind eyes. And this man's afraid because he knew how Paul used to be in Saul. And God said, don't be afraid of him. He's a chosen vessel of mine. You need to go to him because he must know how much he must suffer for my namesake. And we went through this scripture last week, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, right? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, period. If there's no persecution in your life for being a Christian, you have to question your salvation. You have to. Because we live in a world that hates Jesus. They hate his word and they hate his people. They're empowered by Satan. Satan hates Jesus. Anyone who brings into the church the teaching that suffering is not God's will and that giving your life to Christ is going to mean that all your problems are going to go away. I've heard people say this. Hey, you give your life to Christ and all of your problems just disappear. It's the best life now. It's your greatest life. You have the time of your life. Anybody who brings that type of teaching into the church is a false teacher. That is nowhere found in the Bible. I can't find any of that type of teaching in Scripture. Now, we're talking about the sufferings of Christ, but I also want to include the sufferings because we're human beings. And Job says in Job chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, But man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. Do sparks fly upward? Then man's born for trouble. And when we're saying man here, we're talking humans, male and female, mother, father, grandparents, husband, wife, children. Anybody who's human is born for trouble. It's going to be a difficult, hard road because we live in a sinful, fallen world. I've experienced lots of suffering in my life, as you have. My own father passed away of heart disease. I've watched him suffer for many years in and out of hospitals. I've witnessed 
two girls holding hands, skipping home from school, and a drunk driver veer off the road and kill them both. I've witnessed a mother and father standing by the bed of their 13-year-old son who is choking to death because of cancer. I've witnessed women who have lost their newborn babies. It doesn't stop. Every day something happens. And the question we're prone to ask is why? Now, do you know in Paul here, and I'm not saying why is wrong, don't give me that, but, but in Paul, in all of his sufferings, I've never seen him ask why. He never asked the Lord why. He never thought as his sufferings as being unlucky or karma or I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Never. He saw all of his sufferings coming from God. Have you ever asked a question why and ever gotten a response from God? Hey, Lord, why did this happen? How, how would get bringing cancer into my life bring you glory and, and other people to Christ? How would that happen? See, when we start to do that, church, we start to put ourselves in the place of God. And we start to think like we're God. And the only answer or reply you can get to a why would be Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, Right? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know why suffering happens. I don't know why you get cancer. I have no idea why your child died. I have no clue. But I do know that God is absolutely sovereign. And as we're going to see here very soon, he's the father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's not some mean, mad God up in heaven trying to dominate people, trying to bring suffering in people's lives so he can just get his kicks out of it. He's intimate. He's close. He grieves when we grieve. So in our outline here, if you have your bulletin, open that up. We're going to look at three things. Who God is in our suffering what God does in our suffering, and why God does it in our suffering, okay? Let me just read you verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So Paul here, and especially in verses 8 through 10, he's expressing thanks to God for his comfort and his mercy in the midst of all of his pain. Now, if there's anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered from pain and persecution nonstop, it was the Apostle Paul. So real quick, we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians 1, but I want to go through this letter and let Paul express to you some of his pains and sufferings that he's gone through, okay? So real quick, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and look at verse 8 with me. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 4 and 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, I read this a little bit earlier. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. One more, 2 Corinthians 11. Look at me in verses 23 through 28 real quick. Are they servants of Christ? Here he's talking about these super apostles and Paul is defending himself. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors. Now he's trying to defend his apostleship. And look at what he uses to defend his apostleship. He says, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day... I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers and toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. I guess I, I guess I, I wanted to bring that up because I wanted, you, I wanted you to see that there's always someone else who may be going through more difficult situations than yourself. Making no light of what your problem is. I'm not doing that. But as we could see here, Paul's saying, everywhere I turned, everywhere I went, persecution awaited me. I got whipped. I got thrown in prison. I got stolen from. They waited and they jumped me. All of this for the name of Christ. All of that for the name of Christ. It's, not Paul, it's as if Paul were saying here, if you want proof that I'm an apostle, you want to see evidence that I'm an apostle, here it is. And he reads that list. Paul's sufferings did not cause him to doubt his faith in God, but confirmed it. And he needs the Corinthians now to understand this because the Corinthians, like I said, thought that a Christian was supposed to be puffed up and not to have any trouble at all. And this is what the super apostles were telling them. And Paul's saying, you've got it all wrong, Corinthians. You don't understand. I need to show you what a true apostle, a true Christian looks like, because you can't see what God's doing in my suffering. Because in my suffering, it's actually going to benefit you. This is what he's trying to tell them in our text here, okay? Jesus said in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, listen to this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, which means prosperous, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So Jesus is telling them right before that, he's saying, beware of these false teachers who come to you in sheep clothing, but inside they're wolves. 
and, and, and they're telling people to go on this road, go on this broad road. It's an easy road. There are many people on it. You can, you can live your life of sin. You don't have to suffer one bit. You can just say you're a Christian and go to heaven and get on this road. And Jesus here says that there are many on this road. It's a prosperous road. But look where that road ends. It ends in destruction. Eternal separation from God. However, the gate is narrow. You just don't stumble upon this gate. You have to work for it. You have to find it here. And, and the way is hard. That leads to true life. And those who find it are few. It's not an easy life. It's a difficult road. To follow in the steps of Christ means you're going to follow in his sufferings. Even lose your life for it. But if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy to be called a disciple of Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. So let's look at verse three. Who God is in our suffering. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now, if there has been one verse in the whole Bible that has comforted me in my suffering, it's this one right here. I don't know if most of you know this, but I'll just share this real quick. Last year, back in Kentucky, uh, I had been bitten by a brown recluse spider. I didn't even know what a brown recluse spider was. I'm from San Diego, okay? Uh, Kentucky, they know them very well. So um, I got sick one night. I was telling Cheryl, I said, I feel really hot, and I felt like I had a real bad sunburn. And she says, you're red all over the place. And I said, I wasn't even out in the sun. I, I don't know what, what's happening. She goes, are you having like a, a reaction to something you ate? And I said, I don't know. So the next morning, I, I felt my arm, and it felt like I had gotten a tetanus shot. It was really sore, and I found two holes in my arm. And there was a, a, a redness started to appear. So I went to the, the seminary um, doctor's office, and uh, they sent me to the urgent care. And the urgent care said, let's keep an eye on this, give you some antibiotics, and uh, if the redness you know, moves any further, let me know. So the next day I woke up, and it was like that far down from the pen they had circled. So it was spreading. I guess that was poison. So they sent me to the ER, and they put me in a gurney and, and hooked me up to IV, and I spent almost two days in the hospital. Now, I'd never been in the hospital in my life, and I was never a big fan of hospitals, <laughs> visiting my dad a lot of times. I mean, I just did not like hospitals. So here I am, and they told me I'd been bitten by a brown recluse spider, and they showed me pictures of the effects. I don't know if you've ever seen the effects of brown recluse spiders, but they're not pretty. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'm going to lose my arm. I, I could die. And I'm thinking to myself, I would never have thought that I would die in Kentucky by a spider bite. <laughs> I, guess, I guess God knew this before the foundation of the world, but I didn't. And I was scared. I was, I was alone. I was sitting in a, laying in a hospital with tubes hooked up to me, drawing blood everywhere. And I was nervous. And this passage right here, I just meditated in it day and night, day and night, and let, let it do its work, and it brought me such peace that God knows exactly what I'm going through. And Paul says here that he's the father of mercies. He's the father of mercies. This is actually a doxology. He's actually praising God, and he's worshiping God and thanking him for being such a great comfort in the midst of all of these afflictions that we just read through this whole letter. And Paul certainly could not sing about his circumstances, could he? but he could sing about the God who was in control of the circumstances. See, we're not to rejoice. You know, God, thank you that I got cancer. Oh, thank you. 
I need that. Who would do that? However, we know that God is sovereign. He ordains all things. And we might not sing about our circumstances, but we could praise God who is in control of those circumstances. He knows what he's doing. And it's our job to trust. Paul praises God for his mercy and his comfort, which God gave him in abundance during his afflictions. Now, real quick, over in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at, listen to what Paul says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. This word affliction, you're going to see it over here in verse 4 and 5. I think he mentions it a few times. It's the Greek word flipless, and it means pressure. It's as if you are sitting in a compressor and this heavy thing is coming down on you and it's so heavy that it's about to crush you. This is what this word means. It means pressure, both physically and mentally. And then he goes on and says right here, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, we don't know what Paul went through here in Asia. You can, we can guess on it, but it, it, it's not clear, so I'm not going to guess on what I think it is. But whatever it was, it was a difficult situation. Paul says that we despaired of life itself. That word despair means there's no exit. I am in a place right here, and I have nowhere to go. I have no exit. I have no passageway out. I'm done. I've despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul says, I'm going to die in this position. I'm going to die in this situation right now. There's no way out of this. He had no hope. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel like you're in a situation and there's just no hope out of this? It's not going to change. My husband's not going to change. This illness is not going to get better. Whatever it might be. You're in good company here because Paul felt the same way. We felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, what Paul is talking about here, he's not talking about that God's just going to get him out of that situation so he can go on continuing to, to preach the gospel. He's not saying that. Paul believes he's going to physically die. And what he's believing is in God that when he does die, God's going to raise him. That's what he's saying right here. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Church, oftentimes, only God knows, God will put us in difficult situations, so difficult that it will seem like there's no exit out of this. This is going to kill, this cancer is going to kill me. This, this child, his, his lifestyle, it's going to kill me. There's just no way out of this. And he puts us in those situations so that we would not rely on ourselves, but that we would rely on him and know who he is. It's as if Paul were saying, I never knew how close God could be to someone as much as me as going through all of my suffering. If I hadn't have gone through all that suffering, I would have never really known who God was or how close he could be to us. So when you're in that difficult situation, look at on the other side here. Look at it as a way to, to be brought closer to God and to, to see and to experience this great comfort that Paul's about to talk about. This is what God does. God had a purpose in Paul's suffering. He has a purpose in your suffering. I don't know what it is, so don't ask me. 
But God has a purpose in your suffering. And if you do not have, if you do not have a right biblical view of God, you will not understand suffering. If you do not know who God is, you're not going to have a good view of suffering when it comes. You're going to start shaking your fist at God. When difficult times are happening and we've just lost our, our spouse or we've lost our kids or somebody's hooked on drugs and, and, and it just seems like your life is becoming a mess, of course you can't see what God's doing. We don't have a clue. We're so blinded by sin. We, we have no idea what's going on here. Why? My life was going great and then all of a sudden I'm just, bam, put right here in the middle of this stuff. I don't want this. And you start shaking your fist at God and you start becoming angry. And you start listening to the tempter, just like he tempted Eve, right? Is that what really what God said? Oh, is this, this, would, would God really do this to you? Wow, that's, that seems like a mean God, doesn't it? You ever heard those voices? Absolutely. And we seem to hear them in the most difficult times of our life. I want you real quick, go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is very important. Look at verse 16. I mean, we're going to start in verse 13. Listen to what Paul says after this, uh, this affliction. He says that this treasure is in jars of clay. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe, so I spoke. We also believe, and so we spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Now watch this. So, because of that, we do not lose heart. That means give up. That means quit. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self, our man, our being, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And watch what Paul says here. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Therefore, verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul is trying to teach us here is as, as Christians, we have to get our focus off the temporal and the earth. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. We walk what's going to come, what's going to be in our near, near future here. This is what Paul's talking about. And this, matter of fact, when you walk by faith, all of your sufferings are light momentary afflictions. We read all those right through the, the book here, right? And Paul calls them light momentary afflictions. I've got to endure these for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, however long you tarry here. But compare that to eternal glory forever. What is 70 years? Light momentary affliction. That's it. That's encouraging. So as we're going through our suffering, we have to keep our eyes on eternity, things that are not seen. That there is going to be awaiting us an eternal glory that is beyond all comparison. We can't even imagine. I can't even say words to express that because it's so glorious. And that's what we have hope for. That's what gets us through these difficulties. Going back to uh, 2 Corinthians 1. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This word mercies, the Greek word actually means to have compassion on. Now, some of us here have had earthly fathers who were not compassionate. They were strong. They were mean. They were maybe difficult. But Paul says, our father in heaven is not like that. He is the compassionate father. This phrase, fathers of mercy, comes from a synagogue prayer, which reads, our father, merciful father, ever compassionate, have mercy on us. That's what they would pray. This is a prayer of one who would cry out to God and ask that God would not deal with him according to his sin, but rather be merciful to him and be kind to him. And you know what? He did. He did. Hold your place real quick. Go over to the Old Testament and look at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is right before Job, but I want to read you just and just show you about this father of mercies. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9 over in the Old Testament. It's right before Job. And I want you to look at verse 16. This, he's talking about the, the children of Israel who had just been released by God and taken out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they're out in the wilderness. And out in the wilderness, the, the Israelites didn't really act too well. Okay, so listen to this. Nehemiah 9 verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to the slavery in Egypt. Watch this now. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. God could have easily asked, after they had done that, God could have easily said, you're on your own. I've had it up to here with you and you're complaining. You want somebody to take you back into Egypt, back into slavery? Go for it. I don't care. But this is not God's nature. This is not how God deals with us, church. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and rich and abounding love. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. That's why Paul could say he's the father of mercies. And aren't you glad he's the father of mercies? Lamentations chapter three, verses 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never stops. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, just like we sung this morning. Do you understand this? When you wake up tomorrow, if God will allow you to wake up tomorrow, it's as if he's got brand new, fresh mercies for that day. Not going to give you them for next week. But when you wake up and say, Lord, your mercies faileth not, they're brand new every morning, and I have no clue what's going to happen to me tomorrow, but I'm asking for brand new mercies to get me through whatever you're going to put me through. And you know what he does? He does it because he is a father of mercies. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who's a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He will again have compassion on us. Try, try not to, to compare earthly dads with Father God. God's not like our fathers. I'm thankful for my dad. My dad was loving and caring. I, I appreciate it. But even my dad was not like God. 
Our Father in heaven is merciful and they never cease. He never runs out of it. They're brand new for you. They're fresh, just waiting for you to ask for them. And he gives them to you so that he would grace you to go through whatever he's going to call you to go through tomorrow. That's why Paul could say he's a father of mercies. He didn't just say he's a father of mercies, but watch this. He said he's the God of all comfort. Not just some, but just maybe a little bit here and there. He's a a God of all comfort. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. These aren't going to be up here, but I just, I'm just going to read them to you. Maybe you can jot these verses down and read them later. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah 51, 12. I am he who comforts you. Isaiah 52, 9. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Isaiah 66, 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. This word comforted is where we actually, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's parakalesis, parakaleo. It's, it's, it's one who comes alongside of you to help you through that situation. This is what that word comfort means. In the Latin The word comfort, fortis, means brave or strong or courage. So I want to make sure you know this. When Paul says that God is the God of all comfort and he comforts me, what he's not saying is that God comes alongside like a mother and hugs you and kisses you and pats you on the back and saying, it's going to be okay. That's not what Paul's saying here, although God can do that. He usually does it through other people, right? What Paul is saying here is that God comes alongside of us and he gives us bravery and he gives us courage and he gives us strength to be able to endure the suffering. That's what he's meaning here. He comes alongside and just strengthens you to endure this. Why are you still here today? Look at all the suffering you've been through. There could have been many times you could have been taken out, right? There could have just been many times that you could have just been dead, But yet, God in his mercy and in his great comfort, he had come alongside of you and comforted you in that suffering so that you can endure it and you're here today to speak about it. Nothing you did. It's all him. You see, Corinthians, God's not punishing me because I'm in some sort of sin, because I'm going through all this suffering. He's actually comforting me and coming alongside of me This is what Paul is saying to him. And if you look here in verses 3 through 7, I think he uses the word comfort 10 times. He's trying to get across to them something. God is a God of comfort. Number two, what God does in our suffering. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. He comforts us in all our affliction. And affliction can come in many sources, but real comfort only comes from God. Do you know that there are some Christians that when suffering comes, they run to the medicine cabinet for comfort? They do. When suffering comes in their life, they run to the liquor cabinet for comfort. or they'll run to whatever. Let me ask you this question, if maybe some of you have done that before or are doing that. Has that worked? Has that helped in any way? Has drowning your your sorrows or your pain 
with alcohol, has that really taken care of the problem? Sure, it hasn't. I can't tell you how many guys I have canceled, thousands of guys. Something has happened to them, and because it's just too difficult or too hard, they drink and drink and drink and just suppress it and suppress it, and every morning they wake up, it's just right there standing at their face, and they take another drink, and then they're hooked on it. There's nothing in this world that is ever going to provide you comfort the way God does. His comfort is real. His comfort will comfort you. His strength will strengthen you through whatever God has called you to go through. And I want you to notice here who it says, our comf- who comforts us in all our affliction, that the provision is not for deliverance from the suffering, but comfort in the suffering. That's a tough one, isn't it? God, I, were hoping, I was hoping you were going to deliver me from this. That's not what the, the text says here. He comforts us all in our affliction. In it. The Christian is not promised release from the trouble, but help in the midst of it. The implication is that if we are serving Christ, we will encounter hardship And this is a given of the Christian life as it was a given in Christ's life because we're just like him. However, when God brings suffering into our life, he brings the amount of comfort into our lives to help us through that. Notice here, it says right here, not only does God not deliver us, but he permits the suffering to overflow in our lives. Look at verse five. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, this word abundantly is, is, is a, a large amount. It's like it's, it's pouring a, a water into a bowl and it's just overflowing. Not only does God not deliver us from this, he actually gives us these sufferings in large amounts. But with that suffering, he has also promised us comfort in the middle of that suffering. Now, do you remember over in Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember those guys? If you don't, let me just explain real quick. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, had told everybody that uh, he built a statue of himself and when they began to play the flute and all the other musical instruments, everybody was to bow down and worship this statue. Well, these three Hebrew boys says, under no circumstances will we ever bow down to this statue. And they got word of it. So they told Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar came to them and said, is it true that you're not gonna bow down and worship this image? And the Hebrew boy said, you heard it right, sir. We are not going to do this. So he says, that's it. I want you and you, go, go to that furnace, turn up the flames as hot as it can go, and throw these boys in that fire. Now let me ask you a question. Did God save them from the fire? You're looking at me like, this was a trick question. <laughs> they were not saved from being thrown in the fire, were they? They were thrown into the fire. Matter of fact, the flames were so hot that the two guys that turned it up actually died. However, in the midst of the fire and the flame, Nebuchadnezzar goes over and looks and he goes, didn't we throw three of them in there? Yeah. And weren't they bound? Yeah. Well, I see four people in there and they're loose and they're actually mocking me. They're dancing going, this is great. It's in the midst of the fire. Oftentimes God does not deliver us from the fire, but while we're in the fire, he shows himself faithful. Amen. 
One commentator put it this way. I like this. When God puts his children into the furnace, he keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eyes on the thermometer. Because 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right, says this. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. However, God does not always deliver us immediately, does he? Or in the same way. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 11, right? There were some who had victory and there were some who were cut in half. No difference. All in Hebrews chapter 11, a hall of faith right there. Except God chose to deliver this one and he chose to deliver this other person a different way. But they were delivered. See, we, we have to see that because a lot of times when we're, when we're praying for a loved one and God takes them, why? Maybe God did deliver them, it's just not the way you thought. James was beheaded and Peter was delivered from prison. Both were delivered, but in different ways. And sometimes God delivers us from our suffering and other times he delivers us in our suffering. So he says here in verse four that God comforts us in all our afflictions. Let me give you two reasons or two things I wrote down how God comforts us in all our afflictions, okay? Number one, God comforts us in all of our afflictions by his promises in the word. Whenever you are going through a difficult time, you must go to the scriptures and find the promises of God and stand on those. Those are the only things that are going to get you through. Everything else is just vain. It's, it, it's short, but not God's promises. Listen to David in Psalm 119.50. This is my comfort and my affliction that your promises give me life. I take that to say if he didn't have the affliction, then he would not know that God's word promises him life. He also says in 119.71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statues. Afflictions brought David to the promises of God. And it was good that he was afflicted so that he would learn who God is. Paul said in Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Find whatever you're going through. Search the scriptures. Find the promises of God and stand on them. He is faithful and trust in them. Let me just give you a few scriptures just to comfort you. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. There's a good promise right there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it seems in our suffering, we're always alone, right? Nobody's ever gone through this. I'm the only one in this whole world that's ever going through this. I'm just so lonely. Not, not God here. I will never, it's a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matter of fact, he's actually more closer than you can ever imagine in your suffering. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You, if you're going through suffering and pain and it just seems like it's been your whole life, rest assured, you will be comforted. God has set a limit on it, and whatever time limit that is, you are going to be comforted. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And, 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 and I think this one everyone should memorize. Revelation 21, 4, 
he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you imagine that? For those of us who are in Christ, there is going to come a day where every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. That awaits us, but in the meantime, we endure. God comforts us and helps us to endure until we get there. So don't take your eyes off that. These are the promises we can stand on. Number two here, let me give you another one. God comforts us through other believers' faith. You ever seen a believer suffer and, and stand in faith and, and, you, and you go, wow, that, that really encourages me. How that brother or how that sister is just you know, being faithful and remaining faithful in her suffering. She's got a difficult problem or maybe her kids have a problem or whatever it is, and yet they're remaining faithful. Over in Philippians 1, 12 and 14, we covered this a little bit last week. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bolder to speak the word without fear. So they saw Paul under house arrest, chained to soldiers, and he's preaching the gospel. And what that did to them was that fired them up to give, and gave them boldness to say, this is really cool. Look at his faith. And that just encouraged them to go out and proclaim the gospel with more boldness. They saw Paul's faith. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Going to point three now. I'm going to close here. Why God does it. What are his purposes of doing this? Look at verse 4b. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Jowett said that God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Let me repeat that. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And, and ask yourself this question. If you have never suffered, how are you able to ever encourage anybody who is going through suffering right now? How can you do it? You have no idea. Paul said in verse 6 here of chapter 1, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, Corinthians, See, you're not seeing it, Corinthians. The more I suffer, the more I experience God's comfort. And this is going to benefit you as you share in the same sufferings as I do. God is making me a channel of his comfort to comfort you. Because now that they have been reconciled and, 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 and Paul has put them on course to go out and preach the gospel, they're going to go through the same sufferings that Paul went through. And it's as if God was making Paul suffer and bringing him comfort so that he would be able to be a comfort to the Corinthians who are going to be soon going through the same sufferings as Paul went through. Now take that over into our lives. Let's, do, let's just forget about Christians right now, okay? God comforts you in your suffering. He gives you a surplus of grace to get you through your trial, but also he overflows you with comfort so that you may be giving it to other people. Some of you in this room have been comforted by God through a divorce. Some of you have been comforted maybe through addictions. Maybe God has comforted some of you that, who have had abortions. I don't, I don't know what God has comforted you through. 
But whatever he has comforted you through, do you think that there might be some people who might need some comfort, who might be going through the same thing? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about when you're going through a difficult time and suffering that this is just not about me? God could be using me to be a, an encouragement and a blessing to someone else. I had a girl write, write me, um, I thanked everybody for praying for me back there, and I had a girl write me a letter saying that she was so encouraged of my faith going through the, the spider bite and going through all the, the hospital stuff I got. It, it was just, I, I had no idea that, that she just saw me and, and, and heard about how I was doing, how I was remaining faithful by God's grace, and she sent me a note saying that that encouraged her. What has God comforted you in? What have you been through that God has given you his grace and comforted you? And I, I want to mention this. Listen to this very closely. Some of us, before God saved us, when we were living our lives for ourselves and living in our ignorance, we lived a pretty horrific lifestyle, didn't we? Some of us lived in prison some of us lived through addictions, maybe homosexuality, relationships, whatever it might be. I want to encourage you this morning. There are still people who are ashamed of what they've done 30 years ago, even though they know that the blood of Christ has covered their sins and has taken them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. They're still hounded by that. Be comforted by God. Be encouraged by God. Whatever you have done, if you're in Christ, it's all under the blood as if you've never done it again. And now, be a comfort to someone else. Do you think maybe there might be people who are going through drug addictions and God has comforted you and given you a way out? Don't you think maybe they might want to hear about it? Or whatever the situation is, this is what Paul's talking about. God not only comforts me, but he gives me a surplus of grace and comfort so that I might be a channel to comfort others. I pray that you would be encouraged and you would take this message to heart, that you would take what God has comforted you through and now go and take it and comfort someone else. You might be ashamed because you've had abortion before. Don't be ashamed. Christ is sufficient. It's forgiven. You might have lived in a, a homosexual life. Don't be ashamed. Christ has forgiven you. You might have lived a drug addicted. I might have killed somebody. You might have been in prison. Don't be ashamed. God has comforted you. Now, take that comfort and go tell people the great news of what God has done for you. And watch what God does in their life. Amen? Let me close by, by saying this. I don't know some of you here. I don't know where you are spiritually. But as a minister of the gospel, I want to tell you the greatest news you'll ever hear. And if you already heard this, you can hear it again and be rejoiceful. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we deserve death and punishment. We deserve separation from God. However, God was not willing to leave us in that place. What does he do? He takes his perfect, righteous, holy son, sends him to earth to be born of a woman, and nails him to a cross. 
a criminal's death. And he takes our sins and he places it upon his son and he crucifies him. And now offers us the gift of eternal life. You know, I just had a friend call me a couple weeks ago saying that our friend was sitting on the couch and his wife went to the store. And when she came back, he was dead on the floor of a massive heart attack, 55 years old. You might die of a massive heart attack before you get out of your chair. Who knows? And if you do die of a massive heart attack without Christ, without this comforter, you will be eternally separated from God. Don't let that happen, please. It's a free gift. He's taken all of your sin, put it on his son, and he's died for you. He's paid the price that those who would believe by faith, I trust in what Christ has done for me on the cross. God, I believe that you did that for me. You know, the Bible says you will be saved. And if you do die of a massive heart attack before you get out of your chair, you'll be in heaven. And you will also be able to experience this comfort that we've talked about. If that might be you today, and you maybe want to talk to somebody, talk to me afterwards. We've got leaders here. You can just pull us aside, and we'll talk to you about it. But please, today's a day of salvation. Don't walk out of here because you have no idea what's going to happen in five minutes. That's the greatest news you will ever hear. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and so kind and gracious. I think back on my life, Lord, and where I was, and man, what a mess I made of it. I, I ruined my life that you've given me. But yet, you're a father of mercies and God of all comfort. You've taken me out of the miry muck. You took me out of the pit and taken me out of darkness and brought me into your everlasting light. Father, I pray for the same. I, I pray for people who may have not experienced that. I pray that they would, God. You would draw them to Christ and show them just what a loving father you are. And Father, for the believers here today, I pray that this word has encouraged them that though they go through suffering, it doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits them. Father, give them endurance. Give them strength to continue to proclaim your name and to suffer bravely knowing that you are gonna put a time limit on it and you'll put an end to it where one day will there be no more suffering. I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us, God, in your word. And as we continue to worship you in song, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.